0: You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from our friends. I am an e. I am, an I am an Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Janice Legata, and this is God Is Not Given, an evangelical podcast featuring me and my failing faith and conversations with my friends and family, and sometimes a legit author. At the beginning of this year, I finally got around to reading a book that had been on my radar since it came out in 2020, a book that provides so much context for so much of what we saw happening religiously and politically over the last two election cycles, a lot of which probably played some kind of role in where a lot of us have found ourselves as far as deconstruction or whatever new term we're going to come up with now that the evangelicals have taken it upon themselves to co-opt the word and ruin everything as they do and have done for decades now and not for nothing literally what Kristen Dumay does such a great job of in her book Jesus and John Wayne is tying together so many of the threads that I know I'm still trying to untangle in my own personal christian history and probably yours too so without further ado episode 2.6 here we go when I first saw you. Kristen Dumais, author of *Jesus and John Wayne*, which is an amazing book. Um, so I read it, I guess, about two months ago now. Well, it was definitely in 2021. So yeah, it feels like this year is much longer than it is. <laughs> it does already. But yeah, such a such a good book. And reading through it, I felt like I understood my childhood more. I was like, all of this just just tracks. It like fills in so many, just so many blanks, yeah. um, of so many things. And then I reached out on Twitter, 2021. I'm just shooting my shots, and I said, hey, why not? Let's let's see what happens. She said yes, and so here we are. So, here Kristen, are. thank you, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for writing this book. So we'll we'll get into into that and all my questions and and queries and thanks and just a few but you know like i was just saying i felt like reading through the book just explained so much of my childhood so i was very much christian christian child raised in a christian household um my question now week to week is whether i'm still a christian i'm not not very sure Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of leave it up, leave it up to the fates to decide. So this week, you are standing in for the fates. So Kristen, (laughs) give me give me three things that make someone a Christian.
1: Oh, oh my goodness. See, (laughs) This is totally out of my comfort zone because I am a historian, and uh, this book has kind of pushed me into spaces where I have to speak on things that I really have no business speaking on. So I just end up making stuff up all the time with the caveat that I really don't know what I'm talking about. That's very
0: Christian, except for that caveat.
1: (laughs) So what makes somebody a Christian? Uh, I guess, uh, you know, ultimately... I. Ideally, it's uh, following Christ, uh, but it gets really complicated very quickly because, you know, what kind of Christ are you following? Um, But I'll just leave it, you know, following Christ. Um, You know, I think also people who say that they're Christian count as Christian, and I think a lot of Christians uh, are frustrated by that. They'd rather (laughs) say, they're you know, I don't like them. They aren't real Christians. So real Christians are really, really cool people, and all the bad ones aren't real Christians uh so i think identifying as a christian we have to count that uh let's see those are two things i need to have a third um what else makes somebody a christian i, I well i will go a little normative uh i think we can also not just identifying but you know kind of living out living out the faith um so it's, it's more than just uh, saying it, uh, that's part of it, but uh, also some authenticity in, in, uh, in, in living that out in some way. So three things.
0: Well done.
1: So <laughs> let's see. This week, well, it always gets tricky when people say, do you
0: claim it? Because I don't. So then that kind of takes me out of the running right <laughs> away. Um, but for the past, the past few episodes, I've been Christian-ish, and
1: mm-hmm. I think...
0: I think I'm I'm continuing on that streak. So mm-hmm. not not fully, but ish. Mm-hmm. So sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so but then that takes us right into yeah, what how how did you end up here? So, you know, cuz you're you're the historian. So what's what's your background with with Christianity or not, like how, yeah, how did you get here?
1: Yeah, I have a um uh, a pretty clear, uh, kind of rooted history in Christianity. I was born into a Christian family. Uh, my dad, a theology professor and ordained minister. Uh, so I grew up in a small town in Iowa in which certainly everybody I knew was Christian. <laughs> I, I don't know that I knew anybody who wasn't a Christian until uh, my family moved just briefly uh, for a couple of years and I lived in Tallahassee Florida i went, I mean I, I grew up in Christian schools uh in a Christian town and um and again a home that was deeply Christian and very uh uh theologically oriented so that that's my upbringing um then we moved to Florida when I was um in high school. And that was a really eye-opening experience because uh, what I, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, which I thought was kind of the center of the universe uh, and also the source of all truth, um, mm. because that's what I was taught. Like really, any question I had, again, my dad's a theology professor, so I just go ask him and I get the right answer and then I go on. Um, and then I moved to Florida. My parents couldn't afford the Christian schools there. Uh, My dad was in graduate school at the time, getting a PhD in religious studies. And so I got tossed into this huge uh, public high school, Uh, diverse in every way. Uh, religiously, racially, uh, and so it was amazing. I absolutely loved it, and I learned very quickly that um, nobody had ever heard of the Christian Reformed Church there, and so, and you know, I'd have to define myself as like, well, oh, it's kind of like Presbyterian, and then some people had heard of that, or maybe some. Sometimes I just had to go Protestant, and they they kind of knew what that was, mm-hmm. you know. So it was just a really um, wonderful experience for me to, to be in a place where, you know, in my own upbringing, in my own Christian schools, it was really like the cool thing to do was to distance yourself as much as possible from, from your faith, you know, to be the rebel. Uh, whereas in this big public high school, it was like if you bothered to identify yourself as a Christian, people actually kind of expected things of you, you know, behavior mm-hmm. or and beliefs and stuff. And so it was just really it came at the right time for me. Uh, then my senior year, I ended up as an exchange student in, uh, Germany. And at that point, I, um, uh, also, you know, just experienced not just, uh, uh kind of this, this, uh, 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 religious displacement, but also cultural displacement where I started to think a lot more critically about not just my faith, but my national identity, my values, you know, what does it mean to be an American, uh, and, uh, Germans had a lot of ideas about who Americans were, and and so it was really helpful to kind of see my my culture through um, other people's eyes, and then um, coming back to um, uh, my home, I ended up going to a small Christian college in my hometown where my dad taught, and uh, but still, I think was was you know brought these bigger questions um, uh, to uh, you know kind of back home. Mm-hmm. Then I ended up. Uh, Being very curious about American history and about American religion. And so I decided to go on to graduate school in American religious and intellectual history at the University of Notre Dame. And that's where I first encountered uh, cultural history. And that's where I first uh, encountered women's history and a critical study of gender. And it totally changed my life. I mean, it just like the day I read my first book in gender history. It was just like I immediately changed my my course of study from intellectual history to gender studies um, in American religion, and uh, I really haven't looked back since. So that's kind of my upbringing. Um, my faith has, I guess, evolved um, a- accordingly in some ways. I'm still a member of the Christian Reformed Church uh, mm-hmm. here in Grand Rapids. I teach at Calvin University. Uh, but I've always really seen my faith as um really aligned with my interest in a study of gender and power. I mean, I'm a Calvinist, so I grew up you know hearing a lot about original sin and to me, this you know critical study of of gender and race uh, are just ways of understanding how power works and how power can be abused and we should not at all be surprised that this is what people do. Because uh, again, I've been taught the whole total depravity thing. And if we're, I've also been taught, you know, our job is to, to strive for shalom, to, uh, you know, seek restoration. And you can't do that if you don't know what the problems are. Uh, so uh, this kind of critical study I always understood as, as really a part of my, um, my calling as a Christian. Generally and as a Christian scholar, so I keep insisting that that's the case. I realize sometimes I'm in the minority position in certain religious circles, but to me, I've never felt this this huge disconnect. To me, I see the, the work that I'm doing is fully in line with uh, with my Christian faith.
0: So the Christian Reformed Church, because because I mean Christianity is so large, but we don't generally think of it that way. Like whatever, whatever sect of the team we're on i think we just tend to think that's that's kind of everyone on my end then you're either in or out yeah so is the christian reformed church is that at all evangelical
1: that's a great question and it's something that i've i've struggled to discern uh i opened my book talking about the christian reformed church a little bit my own um uh, you know, positioning there, and honestly, I grew up identifying against evangelicalism. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I come from a Dutch immigrant culture. My mom isn't an, was an immigrant from the Netherlands, uh, and you know, we were distinctive. We were reformed. We were Dutch. We were better than evangelicals. A lot smarter than evangelicals. That's certainly what I um, I learned growing up, and then. Um, so, I never identified as an evangelical. That said, you know, the Christian Reformed Church is technically a member of the National Association of Evangelicals, so you can put me in that box. And as I came to uh, really start to study evangelicalism, and honestly, to meet real evangelicals, like, I understood that I had been formed by evangelical culture. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we had one bookstore in my town, and it was a Christian bookstore. So that's, you know, you wanted a book, you got it, or you got a gift, uh, that's that's where you went. Uh, we listened to Dobson's Focus on the Family Radio. I listened mm-hmm. only to uh, uh, contemporary Christian music. Uh, I You know, the top 40, that was secular, and it was evil, so I didn't listen to it. You know, so I had imbibed these evangelicalism in many different forms without actually realizing that that's what it was. I thought it was just how how you are a Christian.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say kind of like where I can see a difference or a split already. Isn't that like you talked about, you know, your scholarship going hand in hand with your faith. And I would say evangelicalism doesn't have a lot of scholarship.
1: It doesn't. Not as much, right? My So my tradition is much more, um, you know, uh, rooted in an in, in intellectual tradition. And, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like Mark Knoll from within evangelicalism has written about the scandal of the evangelical mind, you know, essentially that there isn't much of one. Uh, and so, again, I was coming from this, this other tradition that set itself against uh, the kind of anti-intellectualism of evangelicalism. So I guess the best way to describe my positioning today would be evangelical adjacent. You know, I'm not coming from deep inside the subculture. So I also don't feel this um, ha- this need to really reject or, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's really not mine to reject in some cases. And so I think mm. I have a little bit more critical distance than some, Evangelicals, right? Who are really struggling to come to terms with their own formation. Um, there's some of that for me, but I, I definitely have a bit more of a critical distance. And yet, I, I was close enough that I, I was watching this play out. So I have the familiarity without the, as, without some of the emotional investment. I think.
0: In other words, you are blessed.
1: Um. <laughs> it, it, it works. It works. Yes, could be worse. So
0: you said, like, your time in Germany, like, gave you this opportunity to kind of look at the U.S. from the outside. Yes. Um, I had that, too, like, going to Sydney, even though, even though I was very much going there to be part of, you know, the evangelical culture. Mm-hmm. I think it does something. Like, I, I 100% think everybody should leave this country yes. at some point and, like, live outside of it because it yeah. really does just change your worldview. In the it sense has. that it gives you one, like yeah, I think a yeah. lot of Americans just don't. We're we're so just inwardly focused, mm-hmm. um, you know, not yeah. just as evangelicals but as Americans. Like we are, we are number one, and you can't <laughs> tell us any different.
1: Yeah, one of the things that was really challenged uh, in me in uh, when I was in Germany was uh, American nationalism. Right, because if you think about German history, and and this is a while ago already that I was there. I was, it was in, 19, in the early 1990s that so I was in high school, and um, and and really that wasn't that long after. You know, there's there still is this reckoning in terms of the Second World War and and the legacy, and so nationalism is not cool in Germany, right? <laughs> like you, there are, there are real limits that are placed on expression of nationalism. There were then and. An awareness of the dangers of mm-hmm. um, uh, of nationalism, ethnocentrism, and so they would like look at me and hold me personally responsible for the excessive patriotism of Americans. Like, what's up with all your flags? What's up with your, you know, America first and stuff? And I at first I'm like, What are you talking about? You know, that's just there's nothing wrong with that. And then, you know, in that context, you start to understand that maybe there is something wrong with it or what is up with it. You know, it gives you eyes to see what otherwise you just take for granted. It's just part of the air you breathe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if that's like the early 90s, something, and that's even before 9-11, because I remember yes. like there was a huge, everyone had their flags then yes. and it, you know, you were just ultra, ultra American. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, we've been just progressively... This has been yeah. ramping up it has um, this is this has been building, so then you you emerged twenty twenty Jesus and John Wayne. Where yeah. did that come from?
1: <laughs> so um, yeah i i uh, my first book was actually on the history of Christian feminism, but um one of the fr- and that I think gave me some gave me eyes to see some of this too because uh, I, that research demonstrated to me that uh objection to patriarchy. Uh, is nothing new, to Christian patriarchy is nothing new, and it has long come from inside Orthodox Christianity itself. So you can be an Orthodox Christian, you can be a conservative Christian, even a fundamentalist in terms of you know uh, the authority of the scriptures, inerrancy, and all of that, and still read the Bible in a way that says that patriarchy is a distortion of God's will. Um, and that's really the the subject of my first book, and so I think that um, because I had done that research, I knew not to take patriarchy for granted as mm-hmm. just default Christianity. Um, and I think a lot of evangelicals and a lot of scholars of evangelicalism do take it for granted. Oh, this is just biblical; it's just plain Christianity, and so it it, it doesn't need any explaining. It's it's you know nothing to see here, um, and and that's not a, a very kind of historical. Um, Angle to take, right? We, uh, what what that Christianity has not always found expression in in kind of patriarchal form. Um, often it has, uh, you know, Christianity has destabilized the status quo. In not always, <laughs> not even most of the time, but it has. And so, in any given moment, we should be curious which expressions of Christianity we're seeing and why. Uh, but really, the the motivation for this book. Uh, was sparked my first or second year at Calvin. Um, I was a new prof, teaching a course in U.S. history, and I just um, given a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt. And I w- wanted to show students like what I had discovered in graduate school how gender worked in history. I wanted to show them that masculinity was about more than just what you what you think personally or do in private, uh, that it's connected to broader economic and historical shifts. It's connected to foreign policy, to American empire. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, rough rider, was just the perfect uh, example of this. And after that lecture, a couple of guys came up to me from the class and said, Professor Dumais, there's this book you have to read. And it was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. <laughs> and, right? And so I listened, I, I read it, and I saw exactly what they were talking about. The, the book opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And then Eldridge goes on to sketch this very um, militant, militaristic conception of you know, Christian manhood. Uh, and God is a warrior God, and every man has a battle to fight. And... Uh, And this was, again, 2005 or 2006, uh, the early years of the Iraq War. So you mentioned 9-11, where this is the, the immediate aftermath. And I was seeing all this survey data that white evangelicals, more than any other Americans, were enthusiastic supporters of the Iraq War, of preemptive war in general, condone the use of torture. I mean, we just had all this stuff and it's mm-hmm. like, what is going on here? And so I was looking at that survey data uh, over here and then I was reading this very militant conception of you know, quote unquote, Christian manhood. And I just asked, you know, what does one of these things have to do with the other? And that's when I started investigating. Um, and this was also the height of the Mark Driscoll days. And so this kind of militant and misogynistic Christianity was, um, uh, you know, the topic of much discussion. And and that's that's where this, this project originated. I ended up then setting it aside for a time. I had a lot of other things going on. And I had this nagging question, uh, because what I was finding was incredibly disturbing. And... Um, and so I, I wasn't sure if this is some fringe movement that I'm looking at, or is this legitimately you know kind of mainstream evangelicalism and thus warranting you know the years of my life that I will spend on this project? And I wasn't sure how to how to start through that. And I, I had a kid and another kid and then another kid. And so anyway, I just I just kind of shelved the project for a time, always intending to come back to it. Uh, and then one thing led to another. I was uh, in 2015 actually researching the religious history of uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and uh, her progressive Methodism. And so I was watching things very closely uh, around the election and uh, around religious voters. And then it was in the fall of 2016, in the days after the release of the Access Hollywood tape, actually in October, that um, all of a sudden things clicked for me. And I realized that um, actually many of the men that I had been um, kind of keeping an eye on, proponents of this militant masculinity in the ensuing decade became embroiled in scandals, uh, abuse of power, or sexual abuse, uh, or supported men who, who had. And so um, in the wake of the Access Hollywood, that's when it clicked. And I thought, we've seen this before. We've seen evangelicals uh, enthusiastically support and defend abusers. And I um, I think i i think i have something to say about that and that's when I, I pulled out that old research um dusted off those files and decided to write jesus and john wayne
0: it's just wild to see like i said just that progression um and to look at it kind of from the outside and it's so weird because even even with like teddy roosevelt and reading your book like when i think about teddy roosevelt like, I don't, like, manhood doesn't come, like, screaming to mind. Like, I'm like, I don't, I didn't know, like, I, I could recognize him in pictures. Like, if you showed me yeah, a picture yeah. of, of presidents, there aren't that many that I would recognize. But I was like, oh, I know that's, that's Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Um. And I just, like, I think it's this rotund kind of guy with this mustache. <laughs> and, like... Nothing about that would be like... Oh, he'd oh, be horrified
1: that that's here. Your- yeah, I know. I mean, he worked very, very hard to present himself as a rugged and masculine <laughs> guy. So, um, I mean, he's probably rolling over in his grave right now.
0: <laughs> but it's so funny because I'm like, like in reading this, in reading your book, I was like, oh, like it's so... Like history isn't isn't that distant. Like that's no. not that long ago. But like our perceptions and images of things... Like, it it almost doesn't – everybody's, like, mythological. Like, it almost doesn't really matter who they actually were. You know, like, even you, you know, mentioning that you were studying, like, the religious history of Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people would be like, that doesn't exist. Right. Like – I got that a lot. Yes. (laughs) What are you even talking about? Yeah. And, like, and and I know – I know that it exists like I don't know that I could have said oh yeah she was Methodist but like I know and maybe only because like I've had to defend Hillary Clinton and be like no like I know like she's taught Bible studies and like taught children's church at some point like he did Yeah. yeah you know these things and so it was just bizarre you know to read and be like oh like so many of these people that have shaped and formed you know my own personal faith and my own you know my own childhood and they were either creating images of themselves yeah. or having images created for them. You know, exactly. something that that surprised me was like how many of them just kind of like almost fell into Christianity mm-hmm. or like, you know, fell into it as a business. Like, you know, to think of James Dobson and like how much influence he had. And it yeah. seems like he just kind of, you know, just stumbled into this. Like this wasn't. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that um, what you said about just the, the lack of awareness of actual history is something that I've really become, of, uh, become aware of since this book has come out. Because, um, I mean, a frequent response of readers is like, both, this is the story of my life, you know, kind of like what you said, and then also, I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. I had no idea how all these pieces fit together. So on the one hand, they experienced it. On the other hand, they've never heard this version of Billy Graham, right? They've never heard this version of James Dobson, even though they grew up listening to him, like understanding exactly what was going on there behind the scenes, what sort of mobilization was taking place, what they were in fact participating in without fully understanding, like understanding partly, yes. And like, so none of my readers are saying, Oh, I didn't know, you know, I'm blameless here. It's the opposite. It's like, I did not fully know, but I see now that I was complicit. Right. And, and so I've been fascinated with this um, knowing but not knowing response of it's so intimately familiar and yet so shocking to readers. And I, I think I've come back to this idea of uh, you know, who is telling our stories? Um, and for evangelicals who is telling their stories? And evangelicals have really, um, you know, uh, kind of insisted on telling their own stories. And so that has not served evangelicalism well on the whole, mm. it's, it's a whitewashed version. It's, uh, you know, they're looking for their own evangelical heroes and they have been unwilling to to explore the, um, uh, really the, the the darker sides of the tradition. And, you know, they do this for a number of reasons, to protect the witness of the church. You know, it just seems unseemly. And to be honest, I, I was a part of that as well. You know, when I set the research aside early on, Part of this dilemma that I had is, is it appropriate for me as a Christian to be shining a bright light on the dark underbelly of American evangelicalism? Because it was ugly. And then I, so I doubted myself, you know, is this really the story that needs to be told? And so I set it aside. So I was part of that too. I had that instinct of, you know, maybe let's just not make a big deal out of this. And so many of us have, have been com- complicit in that. And I think, um, again, we can see how that has not served evangelicalism well and it has not served our neighbors well well i guess
0: it depends on which which branch of evangelicalism you're on because it has served part of it very well because it (laughs) is thriving right now and doing right right right
1: (laughs) right i I should say like morally i'm going to assert that it has not served them well even as it's been extremely (laughs) successful in in terms of accruing power and protecting the brand yes
0: yeah. 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 So in reading your book, like I was surprised by, yeah, just a lot of the characterizations, but I don't think, like, I don't think there were any like new characters that I was like, Oh, you know, I've never heard of these people yeah. except for the ones you weren't, you weren't supposed to have heard of. Like right. some of the people who were way, way in the background who were like yeah. purposely, you know, yeah. staying back there. But I was like, Oh no. Like, yeah. Yeah. I know Billy Graham. I know he had this tenuous connection to some of those politicians Uh i know like i was surprised at like how how much he praised nixon you know in earlier days and all that kind of stuff i was like oh i didn't know they were tied that closely together but obviously no i know who nixon is i know who reagan is i know who james dobson phyllis shaffley like all these people like i know these names yeah but like i didn't know as much about them or how they all kind of connected and yeah, like just just the connections. Um, yeah. So, where were there any things that surprised you? Like how much? Because I mean, if I know it, and I'm I'm basic, yeah. you're a scholar. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, one of the things that surprised me is, uh, I guess you know, as I was researching, initially I was planning on having a, a like smaller cast of characters in this book and uh especially i didn't want to discredit my own research by including fringe characters right um mm-hmm. uh, but then it it started to get really difficult to discern who is actually fringe and 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 that became an ongoing question and you can you can you know hear me thinking that thought through this book who is really fringe here? And I think an example of this would be Bill Gothard. So I had no plans to include Bill Gothard. I had heard of him, he's a shadowy figure, but that's you know an easy way to discredit my thesis is to you know put hang too much on Bill Gothard because everybody's gonna be like, oh, look, she's cherry-picking, you know, he's a freak, he's you know, embarrassing. He, you know, people were against him even at the time. And so, but in my research, I kept running across people telling me. You are gonna look at Bill Gothard, aren't you? You know, people I was interviewing and and kind of very normal, mainstream, respectable evangelicals that I had no clue had come under the under the influence of Bill Gothard, or you know, usually their parents had. And mm-hmm. enough of them had told me that that finally I was like, okay, let me look at Bill Gothard. And then what was really interesting, and this is the way I structure it in the book too, is just how similar Bill Gothard's teachings on authority and gender, and hierarchy were to James Dobson's. And nobody's Mm going to say James Dobson isn't mainstream evangelicalism. I mean, he defines mainstream evangelicalism for decades. And and so when I hold up Bill Gothard next to James Dobson, there are way more similarities than differences. And so that became a kind of theme right through the book where I'm going to, yeah, let's look at the quote-unquote outliers. Let's look at the Doug Wilsons, the Doug Phillips. And first, we're going to discover they're not as fringe as we think. <laughs> there are mm-hmm. millions of people, or at least hundreds of thousands of people, who have come under the influence. And then, and then you can uh, what I came to, to, you know, explore was how do indisputably mainstream evangelical individuals and organizations like you know Christianity today, like John Piper, like you know, uh, you know these these eminently respectable uh, folks end up platforming and endorsing and and amplifying the voices of some of these more, you know, quote-unquote fringe figures. And and that's really the story that I'm telling. So I think we have to understand how evangelicalism works. And um, the question of where is the center and where is the fringe is, is one that we need to be asking. And we need to understand power dynamics within the movement. We have to understand networks and relationships and uh and that's really how I try to examine evangelicalism as this movement of relationships, networks, and uh, you know, uh distribution networks and so on, and always attentive to power dynamics.
0: Yeah. I mean, because that whole question about what's what's fringe and what's not, like it's not even yeah, it's the individuals. But even now, like looking at looking at the US as a nation. There's not, you know, like if we look at the election, I'm like, okay, it's, it's horrific that this many people, you know, to me, it's horrific that this many people voted again for Donald Trump. And, you know, and I'm not, they're not all evil. Some people legitimately just, mm-hmm. you know, that it's Republican and that's what I do. And literally have put no, no further thought behind it. Yeah. But there is this contingent that is very much no, I did it because I'm evangelical and I believe in that dot dot, 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 whatever. Yeah. But even so that 76 million, like that's not, I mean, he lost finally, you know, I mean, he lost both times, like the popular vote. So it's not, there's not this majority of people that think this way or feel this way or vote this way. It's not even, it's not even half of the voting population. Mm-hmm. So like it is, it is like this small faction, really. But they're so loud, they're so vocal, they're so present, um and then you know the media focuses so much on it, so it feels like they're everywhere, you know all the time, and it honestly feels like they hold so much power, but I'm like, I feel like it is this fringe, but is it like like it's yeah. hard to
1: i mean I wouldn't call it a fringe i wouldn't and and um so you know white evangelicals. Uh, generally, you know, if you, if you're depending on which survey data you look at, um, you know, we're talking about between, um, you know, a fifth and a, a quarter of the U.S. population, depending on on which which survey data uh, or, or or mechanisms you you um, kind of go with there. So it is a large group, but then within that, you know, you've got a lot of variation. So even if you just go with the, you know. 80-20 breakdown, roughly, uh, in terms of those who voted for Trump and those who didn't, right there you can say, okay, so four out of five is what we're looking at. And then within that 80-81%, uh, then, you know, you have a range. You've got the the diehard base, the true believers. You've got those who are leaning that direction. You've got those who are somewhat ambivalent, you know, so there is definitely um, variety. But Um, Here too, the relationship between kind of the fringe and the, or the extreme and the mainstream is really important to examine. And that's something that I've been watching very closely over the last four years and really over the the last few weeks in, you know, in the wake of uh, the events on January 6th. Um, What, um, you know, yes, folks who stormed the Capitol and folks who were gung-ho, you know, uh, this is the right thing to do. Let's fight. Let's attack. That's a small percentage of Americans and of, you know, white evangelicals. But then what I'm really interested in are the sympathies of those who weren't storming the Capitol. You know, so what are we hearing? You know, what I heard in in a lot of evangelical circles was First it's Antifa, it's not us. (laughs) And then when that kind of, you know, and Franklin Graham was feeding them that. And Franklin Graham says it on Facebook. And within, you know, an hour or two, I'm starting to see that um, appear on other, you know, Facebook pages. And um, that's kind of how that works. Um, but, But a lot of, well, we don't condone violence, but but, and then, you know, and, and so effectively they really are, you know, but you push us too far or, but there are a lot of real concerns here or, but, you know, and so that's where I'm actually fascinated, you know, the quote unquote respectable Christians, uh, who, who are still tacitly condoning this extremism. And that's, actually something that concerns me quite a bit, and that's really what Jesus and John Wayne, this historical narrative, I think demonstrates why this is so often the case, because the affinities are there.
0: Right. All right, so the full title of the book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. So, so white evangelicals. Yes. Like, when did you know you had to make that distinction? Yeah,
1: yeah. So a a couple of points where that kind of surfaced. One very early on, you know, I read Eldridge's book, and I I read other popular books at the time. And Eldridge's book was enormously popular. Right, it went on to sell more than four million copies. So any writers know, like that's crazy. That is crazy. Royalties are. Uh, impressive uh, so um, I actually had somebody ask me so you know because Jesus and John Wayne has been a you know quote unquote, bestseller uh, they're like so are you close to Eldridge I'm like you know he sold more than four million copies so I'm about four million away from where what you know his number so no we're, we're not in the same universe but uh thanks for asking but uh yeah so so I um, when I was looking early on, actually my, I, I, I looked back a, a, while, a while ago, and realized that the original file that I had opened, you know 15, some years ago, on this research, I named it Hero Worship, uh, because these books, mm. like the writers love their heroes. So again, Teddy Roosevelt, a favorite hero. Um, uh, General MacArthur, another favorite hero, Uh, George Patton, another one, um, Cowboys, they loved their Cowboys, uh, John Wayne, right? That's where where the title comes from. They love these, these heroes. And in time, I, I, it dawned on me that these are all white guys. Um, and, and not only are they all white guys, but a lot of them are white guys who proved their heroic masculinity by subduing often through violence, non-white people. So Teddy Roosevelt is a perfect example, you know, first out in the Wild West and then Spanish-American War, uh, you know, U.S. Empire, Uh, you know, Cowboys, all of these heroes, John Wayne, all, all, you know, all of his, his like, you know, iconic films. He's the heroic white man using violence to subdue, you know, fill in the blank, African-Americans, Mexicans, the Japanese, the Vietnamese. And uh, and so I paid attention to that, and I realized that you know race is not often articulated explicitly, but it was very much there implicitly. That this heroic and militant masculinity was a white masculine ideal and when men of color kind of appeared in these narratives they were not as the protagonists not as the heroes but they were as you know the dangerous men that needed to be defended against so Muslim men uh, you know uh, African American men in terms of law and order politics and so so that was the first thing that that helped me realize this and then there was also the question of um, you know, who are evangelicals? <laughs> what have I been talking about? It's such a slippery term. And uh, what I came to see is that uh, it, there are a lot of um, evangelicals themselves and evangelical leaders who insist on defining evangelicalism as a theological term. It's a mm-hmm. theological category. So if you believe in the uh, authority of the scriptures, you know, the centrality of the cross, the conversionism, you need to be born again, boom, you're an evangelical. Well, if you if you go with that theological rubric, then you know most Black Protestants in the United States count as evangelicals. Uh, the problem is that most Black Protestants in the, in the United States do not identify as evangelicals. They're like, no, 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 <laughs> right? <laughs> because it's very clear to them that there is more to evangelicalism than checking some theological boxes. In fact, if you if you scratch beneath the surface even, you'll understand that what is meant by checking those boxes. Who is the Jesus you're following? What passages of the scriptures are you upholding, right? Which, which are really crucial to you there are some real differences there, um, and so I wanted to respect those differences. And then, as a cultural historian, I, I just needed to understand evangelicals as a as a kind of cultural movement, as as they as they actually appear in history and in their communities. Uh, you know, the vast majority are attending white dominated churches. I look a lot at, at um, popular culture in shaping religious identity, and with few exceptions, you know, some exceptions, but not, not many. The vast majority of white evangelicals are consuming religious literature and media that is produced by and for white people, for (laughs) white evangelicals. Right. And so, so in terms of just the reality that I was looking at, I was looking at a predominantly white religious movement. And that's all I was trying to do is just describe that movement. Um, and, and it, it just, every once in a while I'll come across somebody who says, um, that subtitle, um, you know, the use of the word white in there is a triggering, is the word I've heard, and suggests that I'm racist. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, it's descriptive, right? This is who I'm talking about. And I've, I have some pretty clear reasons for why I'm doing that. Nothing offensive in that. I mean, the, the rest of that is some offensive, maybe corrupted a faith. And we could talk about that. But that's just a descriptive category, white evangelicals, that I think, as a historian, we have to understand White evangelicalism, as uh, in terms of its white racial identity, and history makes that exceedingly clear.
0: Yeah, I was wondering like how much how much pushback you got on that. <laughs> Less than
1: you might think. Uh, I, I know it was something we we worked really hard on that subtitle. Like the title was an easy easy uh, decision. Uh, the subtitle that was uh, maybe our thirtieth or fortieth. Um, uh, we ran into trouble because my editor and I had come up with many. Uh, He and I always disagreed on the subtitle. Then finally, finally, we reached some point of agreement. And then um, this is a trade publisher, so it's not just up to us. And the sales team nixed it, and they they said I wasn't allowed to use the word masculinity or militarism in the in the subtitle, Mm -hmm. all because those words were too big for a subtitle. And this was always my book on white evangelical masculinity and militarism, so I was kind of backed (laughs) into a corner. And so we had to really just sit back and say what. Ultimately, is this book about? What is this book about? You know that Jesus and John Wayne carried the hopefully the masculinity militarism, uh, and then and what what's the real takeaway here? And it came down to they actually gave me a choice in the end: uh, how white evangelicals transformed a faith or corrupted a faith. And I was like, you know what? I think we have to go with uh, you know transformed. That could be something good. It often is something good, and that's really not what I'm talking about. So I need to be honest. Right up front on the cover, this is not uh, an inspirational story, and so I actually made the call to go with "corrupted."
0: <laughs> and unfortunately, you probably took away some of your Eldridge numbers because
1: <laughs> it is you quite said. possible. It is quite possible. <laughs> uh, you know, I I was going truth and advertising here. Yeah, uh, you know, I didn't want, I want all these people to pick up. Oh, Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Transformed, it, you know, absolutely. Right, right. That is a way to grab the readers. Maybe it'd be interesting if you could you know, go back in time and, and compare sales numbers, you know. Uh, on the other hand, I think that... Uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, especially from kind of outside evangelicalism, are are looking at this book, looking at the title and saying, oh, evangelicals must hate it, right? You know, that is not the case at all. Like The, the reception within white evangelical communities has been astounding. And I honestly think that the harshness of the book is one of the reasons for that, right? Because, Mm. again, evangelicals have long uh, controlled their own story, controlled their own narrative. So evangelical publishers, evangelical historians have been writing their own histories, and they look nothing like this story, nothing like it. And so I think that uh, this is different. It's fresh, and honestly, it rings true. To many evangelicals who have lived this story, and they're ready for a harsh take because they've felt it. They've they've lived this, and they know that something is deeply wrong. And many have been deeply hurt um, by uh, by this movement. Um, I mean, the trauma is very real. I hear from many readers every day uh, from inside evangelicalism, and then there are those on the outside who have been, you know, deeply uh, damaged by this movement and so i think i don't know if the harshness of the the subtitle and the book itself ends up working against it um or or maybe it just says what needs to be said i don't know i
0: mean i think it's definitely we're in a very just a very different kind of time i mean and and i mean there is obviously this 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 mass exodus um from the evangelical church right now. So yes. there are a lot of people feeling this this discontent and trying to figure yeah. out, you know, why. Mm-hmm. Um and your book does such a great job of like pulling all these threads together. Um because like some of us, you know, if we've been deconstructing or, you know, I think as as a woman of color, I just had extra kind of impetus to to look at these things and, you know, try to figure out yeah. you know what what is happening here. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, like I had, you know, I had already been reading different books and articles and things and like your book just does such a good job, of like bringing all these things together. So you don't, you know, people don't necessarily have to go to all these scattered, you know, yeah. kind of sources. Yeah. Um, I think they will afterwards. Cause it's like, oh, now I have somewhere I know where to go to look. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. The world has changed so much just just since the last election. It has. It the has. questions people are asking, and just I mean, the things that we're seeing—like it's it's a it's yeah. a different world—and it's just really hard to deny yeah. either that something's really wrong here, or that something has really changed. Like you're either yeah. having yeah. a great time, or like this this has gone way yeah. off the rails.
1: Yeah, you know, actually an interesting response I've heard from more than one person is that they felt more empathetic towards white evangelicals after reading this book for folks on the outside because they um, just couldn't understand what they have been seeing. And so they were only left with, you know, hypocrisy. Cruelty, right. you know, hate—all of these, like, like I'm—I'm I'm not giving them those ideas. That's you know, they, they already have those ideas when you know when they're just looking around them, um, and so what this book does is it—it it shows that those ideas didn't come from uh, from nowhere. And that people have been kind of discipled into this and have been taught that this is obedient Christianity, that this is goodness and that this is, you know, and I think that um, in some ways that can help people to empathize just a bit and to understand, ah, now I get why you're saying those things. It's. It's, you know, it doesn't necessarily make the, the you know, implications of what you're, you're saying any, any less uh, harmful. But, you know, now I understand where you're coming from a little bit more. And, and that takes some of the sting out of a, at least the personal relationships. And that's something that I didn't actually anticipate. And it's been really um, encouraging for me to hear that this book of all books can still be perceived as, you know, creating greater empathy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Um, because even even like going back to John Wayne and talking about all the just the American fascination with cowboys and yeah. you know all of that. James Baldwin talked about, yes. you know, growing up and watching TV and like you're rooting rooting for the cowboys, and then as a person of color, you know, realizing oh yes, oh like I'm rooting for the people who are really. destroying me, destroying my culture. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be on that side of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then even just the just kind of, you know, I've been talking with a friend of mine lately, even like just as a child growing up, like it's kind of wild that we read like Bible stories to kids. because like The Bible is so violent, like I can't think of any other children's story <laughs> where like the protagonist is like murdering someone like, yeah. you know, even like David and Goli- like all these stories yeah. end with someone being killed or, you know, just these, you know, the flood, like just these mass genocides basically. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if there isn't just kind of this built in disregard. Like you just kind of have a disregard for other peoples (laughs) or you you have you're given just this really black and white thinking that, yeah, an entire people, an entire religion could be against me. Like, you know, (laughs) to look look at the world since like 9-11, especially in the way we think about Muslims like Islam for Christians, you know. Yeah, that that is our enemy. And, you know, to think about the whole justified war theory and all these things, of course, we have the right to go in and, you know, wipe somebody else out Uh or, you know, do whatever. Um, But I remember even even in the, you know, 2005, 2006, with the height of Islamophobia, when everything was starting to grow, like I just remember thinking, we're we're so afraid that these people want to institute their religion as whatever. Isn't that exactly what we're doing? Where is this this kind of disconnect where we feel justified in destroying somebody else for exactly what we're we're trying to do? And so now I'm kind of like, well is it which has taken over which? Yeah. Has like evangelicalism taken over nationalism, or has nationalism? Taken over, yeah. evangelicalism. Yeah. Is there a difference? Like, does it?
1: Yeah, it's 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 both, right? It's both, and you know, you can certainly still find evangelicals who are not Christian nationalists, but uh, evangelicalism has has really fed and fueled Christian nationalism in this country, and uh, and it has actually shaped Christian nationalism so that even uh, you know secular <laughs> Americans. <laughs> embrace christian nationalism which is kind of crazy it's uh but i mean if you look at the survey data like it, you're, you're seeing this play out so yeah and so it creates new alliances right uh between conservative evangelicals in terms of you know certain causes and white nationalists and uh, mm-hmm. you know look at the proud boys as an example and you have these really disturbing uh affinities if not actual alliances although when you look you know on the ground when you look at you know uh, the events of January 6th, You know, these are these are affinities that we need need to take very seriously.
0: Right, right. So, so just this past week, is it still going on? No, it finished. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh, well, done. So, did you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, you know, I forgot. I forgot it was even happening. And when these things happen, like my life is, you know, turned upside down because I'm like, oh no, I have to watch this. That I'm gonna get, you know, calls for journalists. I have to comment on this. I'm like, please, no, not again, you know. But yes, I watched some of CPAC, some, not all. I, yeah.
0: So, what, well, what, well, did anything stand out to you? Was anything surprising? Yeah. Or are you like we're right on track here? Right. <laughs> right.
1: No, I mean it's more of the same. It's it was really tacky and uh you know, we had the the whole golden trump uh, uh you know, statue, mm-hmm. definitely not idol. Statue wheeled through um uh, my favorite moment was Ted Cruz um <laughs> screaming freedom, freedom at the end of his <laughs> address and it was just so cringy and so so um uh, you know on the nose because um uh, Mel Gibson's Braveheart has just been this you know the the uh this ongoing thread and it, it pops up over and over again in Jesus and John Wayne uh, yeah. it really inspired evangelical men towards this heroic militant masculinity and it continues to inspire so you know if anybody watching that without that awareness it was even you know it was extra cringy i imagine like what is even happening here um and but if you if you're from inside evangel close and you're like oh my gosh yeah you know like they've heard from so many men um who have their embarrassing brave heart stories that they need to confess you know yes i wore a kilt and yes uh you know Yes, you know, my, uh, my college dorm didn't allow any R-rated movies, but they made a special exception for this one, and it was streaming on loop in the lobby. You know, like these are the stories that I hear, and so, so Braveheart is this consistent theme. So, so more of the same on that front, um, but what, what can we really discern from CPAC? I mean, no, no change within that arm of the Republican Party, but, uh, you know, the question is leadership and strength of leadership, because Ted Cruz has always paled in comparison to Donald Trump, you know, much mm-hmm. to his own chagrin. He tried. He tried so hard in that primary season, um, and, he, and he failed miserably. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump, too, pales in comparison to Donald Trump of just a few months ago, just a couple months ago, uh, because he's out of power now, and evangelicals were drawn to him because of his power and because he promised to use that power to protect them and to advance their interests. And he did. Um, but he's out of office now. So he does not wield that same power. And so I'm wondering if, um, you know, I don't think that the values have shifted within, uh, I mean, I know they haven't shifted within conservative Republican and conservative evangelical circles but I wonder if things aren't going to work out the same way because they don't have this, you know, warrior leader in Donald Trump anymore. And so there's a lot of people like, you know, trying to, to claim that mantle. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't see anybody successfully doing so yet. It's going to be interesting to watch. It's going to get scrappy, I think. Um, But Donald Trump was uniquely charismatic and arrived, you know, at just this moment and, Um, I, I, what gives me hope is that, you know, I'm not quite sure who will succeed him, who will be able to do so and continue to take things in this direction. So that gives me a little hope that there might be change on the horizon at some point, but it's not coming from a change of values, um, at least at this point.
0: Right. Well, how much, I guess, how much loyalty is there, is there, in that, it doesn't even matter because, you know, I'm feeling, I'm kind of pessimistic at the moment because I'm looking at, we just bombed Syria the other day. I mean, the change, the change is never going to come from the top, honestly, because power is power and people in power like power. Yes. Um, I feel like we've almost been fought up to like fight this, this kind of shadow system, you know, so right now the Republicans are the big bad and they're, they're the boogeyman and we're against them. You know, and kind of the same of like, you know, when you go to write a book about Christianity and you're like, oh, I don't want to like tarnish this. And <laughs> we're kind of that with like Democrats now. Yeah. And it's like, well, these are our, <laughs> this is our team. Yeah. So we can't say anything bad about it. But I'm like, they're not actually doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, power is power. And um, and it's very easy to to get jaded, I think. That said, I, I would push back a bit and say that the last four years have been devastating in so many different directions. You know, so I have a friend who works in refugee resettlement, and the difference that this, you know, election has made for her work immediately, like within weeks of, uh, you know, having now family members cleared to come to the United States to see, you know, like these things matter a ton. Look at you know things like environmental policies and what might be changing on that front. like there are so many issues across the board that have been so incredibly devastating to different communities and and so I think that it's not you know uh, a both sides thing um, big picture. Even mm-hmm. if we can still, you know, you could you could look back to the Obama administration and we can talk about drones and we can talk about, you know, all sorts of issues. We can talk about, you know, racial justice under the Obama administration. We can talk about immigration under, you know, um, right. and, and those are conversations that I think a healthy democracy can have and we are not right now in a healthy democracy. So I think it's a, it's a kind of uh, understandable instinct to say, let's just be nice for a little bit, but hopefully we can get back quickly to a healthier place where where uh, you know, I think it, it's most important for people to critique uh, their own side, right? And that's right. what went so terribly wrong within the Republican party in these last four years, uh, that any Republicans who did try to critique their party Ended up paying an enormous cost for doing so. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, you know it's an understandable instinct, but I think it's it's crucial for our democracy that that we um, you know hold our own side up to standards and and hold them in check as much as possible. Even as I do concede that, yeah, power power is a thing, and uh, <laughs> and those of us kind of on the outside looking in, you know, sometimes we forget that, and those on the inside have stories to tell.
0: Yeah, yeah. But maybe I hope we learn from, you know, all of this, everything that's happened in the past few years, but especially, especially this last year, because I think yeah. COVID just really showed none of our systems work and like all of this, we need to fix a lot. Yeah. Um, so as for like rushing to get back to normal, I'm like, I hope we don't, we don't just recreate the old world. I'm like, let's, yeah. let's learn from this and do something new. And yeah. maybe, maybe the nation will kind of follow what's happening in evangelicalism right now. Like I said, like with this, this mass exodus and people, people kind of reclaiming their own power and being like, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to believe this. I don't have to listen to this. Like I can decide for myself, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can (laughs) take my money elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Decide if my values align, right. You know, what are my, my values and is this an accurate reflection of those values you know I think we do see I don't know that I would quite say mass exodus I think um those who are leaving are vocal about it and so it can feel like a mass exodus and it certainly feels that way to me because because I wrote this book I hear from a lot of evangelicals who are (laughs) announcing to me like I am out of here um but um when you when you listen to uh, sociologists, political scientists, they're also going to say, well, there's there's another effect then, that those who remain um, sometimes become more radicalized, right? Because the voices of protest, uh, you know, the, or maybe the conscience, you know, they, they end up exiting, and then who remains behind? And those become more cohesive and, um, you know, kind of more... Um, often radicalized. Uh, So, so that's like, I hate to, I hate to put a damper on this, you know, but uh, it's, it's a, it's a complicated dynamic. People leave often individually, uh, but then they leave the systems behind and those systems persist. And I think that's probably the most likely scenario that we're seeing, but I don't want to undersell the level of disruption that people are feeling personally right now. Many evangelicals, right, are feeling this deep, Deep unrest and um, and you know and are undergoing you know a kind of personal de- deconstruction. Not necessarily deconstructing their entire faith, like in you know their Christian faith, but deconstructing to understand what parts of their belief system aren't actually biblical. Right? What what, what was part of this like packaging that that just that was sold as authentic Christianity? I think that's the deconstruction I'm seeing mostly. Um, and and so that's that's a very real thing, and it, and it's not at all uncommon. But it takes a lot to disrupt the status quo in terms of broader movements, organizations, institutions. And right now, I see a lot of individuals really taking a stand. Um, but then they end up getting pushed out of their organizations, they lose their jobs, or they exit willingly, because they know they are no longer aligned with their donors or subscribers, or, you know, with the, the power structure. So I haven't yet seen the the kind of undermining of the larger um, kind of movement, the larger organizations, even as on an individual level, uh, what I'm seeing is is very real.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's, that's kind of the the issue at the base all the time like it's not who has the better the better anything it's like who's better organized yes and yes like again yeah. power so yeah. yeah yeah and when the individuals are leaving yeah there's no organization there and yes. everyone's kind
1: of yep.
0: figuring out their own their own yeah. beliefs and you know, which is great, but yeah, we gotta we gotta pull it together.
1: Yeah, yeah. You need a place for people to go too, right? You need new organizations right. or new um, networks to give these people a home, and not just a home, a place of belonging, but also right to facilitate, uh, you know, a different sort of activism, a different sort of community. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So as we finish up here, Kristen, what is something you believe or believe in?
1: So I have not walked away from my faith. Um, I think the thing that I believe in, that I hold on to, is just the radical disruption of Christianity, of the way of Christ, that, uh, you know, we talked a lot about power here. And what I am drawn to Christianity for is because it is so countercultural. It is, you know, the, the Jesus of the Gospels that I um, um, encounter is a Jesus who divested himself of power and asked his followers to take up the cross and follow in that, right? Not grasping for power, not seizing power, not claiming the power that was already his, but saying, you know, uh, no, uh, that, that this is the radical way of the cross. And it is not easy for any of us to follow, right? That's not but but that's exactly what I want to aspire to, and and so that's the Christianity that that I'm interested, in. and that's the Christianity that um, that I'm interested in defending and um, and upholding. And so I guess that's that's what I believe in this this radical nature of of Jesus, and what it is to follow that Christ.
0: And that that I love, that I can support and get behind. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for writing such an amazing book. Um, so everyone yeah. go get that book and
1: then give, give people all your, your handles and where sure, they can find sure. you on the internet. I'm on, yeah. I'm on Twitter a lot too much. Uh, you can find me there at KK Dume. That's actually spelled K K D U M E Z like Dumez. Uh, and I have a Facebook author page also at KK Dumais, uh, Kristen Cobas Dumais. And then I have a website, kristendumais.com. And that's where I put a lot of my writings and uh, book reviews and things like that. But yeah, I'm I'm on social media a lot. I'm on Instagram too, but not much so twitter's the best twitter facebook right now twitter they say that is for the writers right oh i know i I need my words i don't care about pictures i just want my
0: words (laughs) well yeah so follow her on twitter she's great there get her books and yeah thank you thank you so much oh thank you this is great so that's that and that's a wrap on episode 2.6 and you know what i had a really great time with this episode I mean, I always enjoy talking to my guests, but I think I was nervous going into this one because it just seems so serious, talking to this author about her very serious book. And it is serious. But ultimately, more than anything, it's hopeful. It's like Kristen said, a lot of people have walked away from her book with more empathy for evangelicals because they haven't actually chosen to be crappy people and crappy systems. That's a message translation paraphrase. Uh, They are creations of powerful people playing power games. I was a creation of that. And now... I'm a miracle. And maybe you are too. There are whole industries dedicated to keeping us thinking along patriarchal nationalist lines, but somehow more and more of us are finding ways to change our minds. And that's a miracle. So thank you, Kristen, for your book and your time. And thank you for listening in on this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll take a moment to jump on Apple Podcasts and leave a review and be sure to follow this podcast at God is not given on the gram and check out the blog at godisnotgiven.com hit the show notes for all the links tell your friends be well and i will talk to you soon i am an e. I am, an e. I am an